0: This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us this Tuesdays for a session called Impact on MDR on Biocompatibility. Is there a shortage of expertise? We're going to be hearing from the experts from Nelson Labs, as well as Convitech and Cardinal Health. Just go to devicetalks.com to find out more about this fascinating conversation. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the Device Talks weekly podcast and welcome if you are a first time listener. I don't usually say this at the top, but I'd like to remind you to subscribe to Device Talks. You can find us on all of your podcast channels, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple. We are there. Push that uh, subscribe button and you will receive this podcast every Friday afternoon-ish sent directly from me to you. So please do subscribe. This week, got a great uh, great thought-provoking uh, episode for you. So first, I'm going to speak with the Chuta Kadambi. He is the assistant professor at the UCLA School of Engineering. He is going to talk a bit about a paper he wrote for science, and we'll provide the link to it on our podcast notes about whether or not physics and product design and medical devices is introducing some unintended biases on different body types, on different races. So, uh, fun conversation with Achuta, very thought-provoking. I'm sure you'll enjoy that. Second in our closing conversation, I get to speak with Leanne Teplitsky. Leanne Teplitsky is the Vice President, General Manager of Worldwide Robotics at Zimmer Biomet. This makes her our first guest from Zimmer. Very excited about that. Leanne switched over from uh, cardiac and heart where she had uh, built her career in engineering and sales to uh, to lead Zimmer Biomet's effort in ortho. And she has a very, very good reason why. Great conversation about her career and where Zimmer is headed in the ortho space. So let's not delay. Let's bring in my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of of life sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir?
1: Doing well, man. Happy Friday.
0: Happy Friday. It's been an interesting week. Interesting yeah, week. A busy week. Yeah. Busy week. Lots of news. Lots of I uh, got my yeah. got my jab on, on Sunday, my J and J jab. And uh then on Monday, of course, the news came out, but uh I know that was that must have been cheery. <laughs> it's been like
1: like, thanks. <laughs> I, I'm not
0: at all worried, but it's just like, you know, you're just like, you're waiting for that. <sighs> uh, and then it's like, oh, wait, like, don't feel absolutely relieved just yet, but I'm sure it'll, it'll all work out. And uh, it'd be interesting to see what the uh, guidelines prove to be once they hopefully restart use of the, of the vaccine.
1: Yeah. It's like going to a check uh, picnic with chicken barbecue and then, you know, finding out that the host like, you know, was thawing the, the chicken breast in the hot tub or something. I mean, it's just like. <laughs> You
0: know, it's just that tough. might be the most disgusting thing I've Sorry. ever heard. Just <laughs> <laughs> this have, happened I, to you? You know, I had a, uh,
1: <laughs> i had an acquaintance. He said once he went over to his uh, dad's house. That's what his dad said. He was like, "What? <laughs> like, what <were> you?" <laughs>
0: uh, There's nothing, uh, nothing left to be said. <laughs> yeah let's move on to the new market Let's move on <laughs>
1: that's, that's done for the week right this is
0: staying in the podcast though so I want everyone to hear this story <laughs> That is, that is I mean my didn't
1: have it to me not my family
0: like somebody else you know? And <laughs> <laughs> was like wow my dad was notorious for his uh his his rare chicken breast that he would cook mm. up but uh, he, we, would, yes. uh, we would we would take them inside and throw them in the, in the oven to get them completely done but but I don't it's think a he, generational
1: thing I don't <laughs> think he
0: would go that far <laughs>
1: Like all the water is warm. I could just leave the packages oh, out. Lord.
0: <laughs> like, like,
1: I think we're roaring some pizzas now. I'm not gonna like deal with this.
0: My ear brain is <laughs> scarred. All right. Let's move on to all this right. week's New Markers Newsweekers.
1: All right. You know, it's it's interesting. This week we've got a theme. We've got oh, a theme. Do we? Yeah. I mean it's <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's a better theme than our opening segment. <laughs> you know, it's you know, most of the, like, uh, like, we've had, like, a... T- <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: dear Lord. <laughs> 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 this picture <pigless> chicken breast flying. <laughs> What's our theme this week, Chris Newmarker? Oh, man, we
1: got, uh... <laughs> it's nothing to do with chicken. <laughs> Now uh, we've got uh you know, it's it's actually M and A deals. We have got a lot of big, a lot of M and A deal news this
0: week. <laughs> well, that is that seems far more appropriate than our our initial conversation. Yes. So yes, let us let us hit with uh, hit us with number five on the you New just, Market Newsmakers list.
1: Just to throw in a disclaimer: Do not thaw out chicken in a hot tub. Yes, no we are way, not advocating no way do we that. We recommend now. that.
0: Yeah. Surgeon <laughs> <Search in> General <laughs> advises you against <laughs> thawing chicken in your hot tub. <laughs> oh god anyway
1: <laughs> i'll, I'll so, put a disclaimer
0: at the end of the podcast don't worry chris we'll be legally covered that's right <laughs> what's number five
1: number five on the list we've got uh vicarious surgical it's it's a spAC deal we got another uh Uh-oh. one of these special purpose acquisition company deals back,
0: attack. back, attack. back attack spack attack and spack attack is stolen from our uh, our listener ryan blasco who uh Offered it on my LinkedIn post when I posted about this yesterday. So Ryan Blasco, thanks for contributing to the podcast. Thanks for listening, and of course, share and nice. tell your friends.
1: Go ahead, Chris Newmarker. So like you know, this is uh, going to be a 1.1 billion dollar uh, deal in which a uh, Hong Kong based uh, SPAC called D8 Holdings is going to acquire Vicarious, take them public. Um, you know the plans they're going to be on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol uh, RBOT. But uh, you know it's been a this has been a company that's you know made gotten a lot of attention in the robotic surgery space so it's kind of a you know neat to see it going public and uh you know the um it's always interesting to find out who the uh, the people are behind the SPACs because, you know, they're a lot about, you know, the type of people who are running them, you know, like because people are basically saying, you know, we're, we're going to invest in you because we trust you're going to find a really interesting company to take public. And, uh, you know, Donald Tang, the co-founder and president of D8 Holdings, he's a you know, major uh, private equity figure in, uh, in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, and the CEO is David Chu, who founded and built Nautica.
0: It's, yeah, it's an interesting combination. And uh, we had Vicarious in the podcast last August, I think it was, September. And Adam Sachs, the CEO and one of the co founders, great guy. Uh, this company was just felt really early stage to me, really fascinating miniature robotic technology. So for this company to go public through a SPAC at that yeah. higher price, I, I'm i not sure what to do. I, I guess I can't be surprised anymore. It's again, it's a great company, no knock against Vicarious. I just didn't see it uh, going public at, at this stage. So.
1: They're going to be getting uh 425 uh, million dollars in, million dollars in cash like upon the deal. It's fantastic. So be well, a, great. I mean, be a big investments. It's going to be another
0: big mover in in uh, in surgical robotics and, and digital surgery. They have a cool VR component again. Miniature robots that can kind of go inside the body and and do intricate surgeries. So obviously connected to connected to a surgeon, not uh, not little independent robots going in there.
1: BD's putting money into them. They they got some other existing investors you might know, like people like Bill Gates, Eric Schmidt. Yeah, you know, right? so what kind of, you know? It's funny. Yeah. Of all
0: the investors that you listed, BD surprised me the most. Do you know why they would have an interest in a robotics company? I guess it didn't really. They don't really strike me as as a digital surgery type of. Group.
1: I have no idea, but this would be my educated guess. Would be that uh, you know, BD in, in some ways thinks they could make tools around this.
0: Oh, ah, great point. That'd be my no, guess. Great point. Great point.
1: I, I encourage some IBD to reach out to me I might be totally wrong I mean this is just a yeah. guess but you know maybe they're they're looking at how all these other companies can sell tools around robots and they're like well this is this is a robot that looks like there's some really interesting stuff and maybe we could you know uh, you know create uh, some stuff to go around Oh well,
0: you are a medtech media mogul and I host the co-host the best <laughs> podcast that comes out on Fridays about medical devices so there we go. you and I will chase this uh, chase this question now we'll get some we'll get some answers We will
1: find out. I'll be reaching out to BD after this, uh, after we record this podcast. So, all right. So we should move on. Number four on the list, um, we've got a uh, you know a Wall Street Journal report that uh, Medline Industries is uh, looking for for buyer buyer in what could be like a thirty billion dollar deal. Um, you know, Medline declined to comment. You know, for the article, but you know if it's true, I mean this would be a huge deal if it goes down. I mean, Medline is uh, privately held, but it's actually one of the largest uh, medical device companies in the world.
0: I'm largely, I, I admit, I'm kind of ignorant about Medline. So uh, yeah. I mean, what are, do you, what are they, they known for mostly?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just don't think they're as well known just because they're, you know, they haven't been a, a public company, but um, you know, actually like they've been doing um, you know, really, I mean, you know, they, they've actually like thrived amid the, you know, pandemic um, you know, because they're, uh, you know, they're making, they're meeting a lot of demand for, uh, you know, PPE amid the uh, amid the pandemic. So I mean, just a, just a big supplier of like all kinds of stuff that they uh, that they, uh, you know, make. And you know, they've even been reprocessing N95 respirators. They uh, started cranking out hand sanitizer okay. at a at a plant in Wisconsin. Uh, so yeah, it's an interesting company. and We'll see whether this is true. I mean, sometimes when like people like WSJ or Bloomberg have, you know, uh, sources, you know, close to the deal, saying people familiar with the matter saying something's going to happen doesn't happen. But, you know, it's it's interesting. We'll see see if something
0: goes down. Ajuta Kadambi, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Great to have you here. Following up on a paper you wrote for for science called Achieving Fairness in Medical Devices. And uh, it's an interesting analysis sort of of some of the the inequities in our medical devices themselves. We talk about inequities in access to medical care and med tech, but I don't know if we've spent a lot of time really talking about uh, about how our devices may not function as well as they should for everyone, or at least how they should be tested differently against everyone. So what was the, the genesis of this
2: paper? Right. So the genesis is uh, actually from personal experience. It's from a very trivial incident. I was traveling in Europe and I had to use the restroom and then I you know, was washing up washing my hands, you know, using soap, uh, trying to use the towel dispenser. And I had a lot of trouble getting my hand to trigger these devices. So I was sitting there trying and trying. Other travelers were looking at me like, uh, is he, you know, is he new? Does he, does he not <laughs> know how to treat your automatic? And so I had to eventually ask, you know, a fellow traveler with kind of a different skin type to trigger it. And, you know, first time he he puts his hand there, it triggers. You know, this is a very trivial incident it's it's just a you know minor inconvenience uh in this case but when you think about light-based devices so my background is in optics and imaging and we work a lot with light-based devices Mm -hmm. light based devices generally don't play as well with darker skin the reason is you get less light that reflects back and you get lower signal right and higher lower signal to noise ratios then i kind of took that experience from the airport and trying to trigger these automatic sinks and then started thinking about how uh, medical devices had potentially similar implications, especially light-based medical devices. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of was the genesis of this piece, is to really look at, you know, when somebody doesn't really have any, uh, I don't want to use strong terms like racist or anything like that here, but when someone doesn't really have any potentially ill intent, uh, but simply designs the device based on their own experiences, sometimes we can see that it doesn't generalize to, to a broader community.
0: So, and I know one of the first uh, examples you brought up was the the pulse oximeter, which I think has been sort of identified by others as also uh, something that needs to be improved upon. But but you did your background is in light, so this is a perfect way for you to to start the conversation. Where do these fall short, and and could you speak to maybe some solutions that could? Uh, could be forthcoming,
2: right? So I think first of all, the jury's not out. You know, companies that make the pulse oximeters, they'll they've put out some technical reports showing that their performance generalizes across skin types. Uh, we also have other articles, like for example, New England Journal of Medicine in 2020, uh, uh, but 2021 actually, you know, came out uh, in in the turn of the year. Started looking at how these were when these devices were used clinically. There was a bias against darker skin types. So uh, the jury's not out. You can kind of see different opinions. There's some people who will say it's a completely a calibration issue. So I think one of the things that my lab hopes to study using our background in optics is to hopefully more conclusively answer uh, whether the physics is biased or or not. So I don't have an answer for you today, but my opinion is that it's it's not biased. And we're going to look at this objectively and do studies and uh, look at the, you know, uh, we're going to take this device, tear it apart, you know, hook it up to the oscilloscope and really uh, look at these traces to see if... Uh, the device is indeed biased from the physics, or if, as the device manufacturers claim, that their device is actually scalable across wide populations.
0: So, talk a bit about that that process. What will go in on in your lab, and how you'll be pursuing this further? Uh, you have you acquired different pulse examiners from different makers, and you're sort of going to be comparing the the inner pieces of that and, and understanding how they how they work.
2: Yeah. So I think we're going to do it in in twofold. First, we're going to take existing pulse oximeters and and try to look at what we can access in these devices. But fundamentally, we're actually going to build our own pulse oximeter based on kind of the vanilla principles of a pulse oximeter uh, and kind of see without any sophisticated processing, just looking at the physics of the problem, uh, how that plays out. Because ultimately, uh, as you know, the pulse oximeter is an extremely simple device, not much unlike your TV remote. You basically take an LED and uh, two wavelengths and then you shine it on a fingertip or uh, on other parts of the skin. And based on the reflectance, you can actually infer the uh, uh, blood volume because you're looking at the hemoglobin, uh, Mm -hmm. and the spectral curves will tell you uh, if it's oxygenated or deoxygenated hemoglobin, and that proportion is time varying, and then you can create a signal from that. Now, the issue is that for certain morphologies of skin, it doesn't just need to be darker skin, but certainly other morphologies. Uh, For example, some people have thicker skin than others. Uh, Demographically, men, for example, have thicker skin, so. for these other types of morphologies, how does that signal behave? So that's, uh, that's something that we'll be looking at carefully. And the key to doing this is a partnership. At, so we're at UCLA School of Engineering. That's uh, mm-hmm. probably one of the ideal places to do this because we actually share a parking lot with the medical school. So the faculty in engineering... <laughs> Uh, share the parking lot with the medical school. Our housing, you know, faculty housing is actually shared between the medical faculty and engineering faculty. And I think this is largely by intent of the university. So we have a strong partnership where we're actually going to be able to test this device on real human subjects, pending, you know, IRB approval and the, the policies that, uh, that we have for human subjects research. So we'll get to test this on, on real people. And uh, in hopefully one of the larger scale studies, uh, we can isolate where the physics of this problem lies, is it biased or is it not? And and provide hopefully that answer. And I don't know how the manufacturers will respond based on our findings, but I think it's something that the scientific community will be interested in seeing.
0: No, absolutely. And obviously it's, it's been a critical tool used over the past 12 months with, with COVID to measure yeah. the, the severity of the illness. So uh, where if it's falling short, it's certainly something that needs to be uh, identified and, and understood. You mentioned that the physical bias in your in your piece, you said physical bias is not restricted to to skin color. You mentioned mechanical design of implants for hip replacements and how the understanding that those earlier designs were really centered around male anatomy and not female anatomy and it led to the creation of, of gender specific implants. Do you see other instances of mechanical design of metal devices that uh, that favor one type of type of people? over another, be it gender or, or race?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's plenty of such devices that that operate based on kind of the normal, normal range of what, you know, human beings should be. For example, you have people with uh, conditions of extreme height or uh, extreme uh, kind of shortness, right? And, and for these people, a lot of dimensions of existing technologies would be difficult. A simple example is uh, your shoe size, right? Um, you know, we know that uh, actually I have a, awkwardly big feet myself and we know kind of how uh difficult it is to you know i had
0: awkwardly big feet you can tell from this uh, <laughs> the zoom call <laughs> i'm a size 13 triple e
2: same size hey uh, here we go <laughs> so
0: so I'm i think sorry.
2: We're, we're right at the edge you know like where we still have options i yeah. think we're right at the at the tail end so a lot of manufacturers go up to 13 in the stores that's right but sometimes if you go beyond that you know it's uh it, it gets tricky so uh, you know i see the the medical device industry is following kind of long Large 80 eighty twenty rule. That's what business is, right? Ultimately, that's that's how businesses make their money. Uh, but I, I don't know if that's the ideal solution for something like a medical device, uh, uh-huh. which, uh, which we want uh, uh, everybody to have a uh, uh, you know similar opportunities.
0: Looking at the the, the rest of your piece, is, is the the majority of the bias or the discrepancy in data does it come from more the the computational and and data side just sort of the the you you mentioned x-rays and how the diagnostic uh, application of x-rays was really relying upon a a more male heavily male heavy sample than female heavy sample are we looking at, at the need to correct more of this these informational imbalances than physical imbalances or is it a combination of both?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know, first of all, there's a lot of colleagues that are cited in the in the paper, and a lot of this is standing on the shoulders of of their work and, and bringing this to the forefront. So bias in computation, or uh, analogously, I'm going to conflate that with bias in AI. Uh, you know, that, that terminology is it's a white hot area of computer science right now. Uh, uh, you know, you have hundreds and hundreds of the top scientists in the world working on this important problem. And one of the reasons that this just draws a lot of attention is because it's, if you think about a river and, you know, if you think about bias as being pollution, ultimately, uh, you know, you're looking downstream at the river, right? You're looking at, you know, where the river ends. And so the computational aspect is often very close to the end of the river. And so, you know, having a cleanup or treatment plant there traditionally could help. So in other words, uh, the downstream problem has been looked at uh, Kind of with, I would say, disproportionate attention because cleaning up the downstream problem, I, you know people believe that that could lead to a fair device. So I think uh, definitely there's biases there and we, and we need to, to counteract that. But I think what the piece contributes that is a little bit unique from uh, what's out there from other colleagues is tracing actually bias back down to the fundamentals of physics, going all the way to upstream. And I think that's a really exciting area. So I'm actually not answering your question, I'm bringing it back upstream the river. And the reason is because when we think about the computational bias, for example, data set bias, but not limited to data set bias, this is obviously suboptimal and we need to fix that right away. But what people often don't realize is that sometimes these devices through through kind of a, a no fault of the engineers, no racist intent or or whatever, uh, is simply biased in the laws of physics. And mm-hmm. that really excites me when the laws of physics are biased against something and I think in order to kind of clean up the river properly, yes, we need to fix computational problems, but I would like to fix problems at every part of that river mm-hmm. uh, so that, you know, we don't have uh, compensatory, we, we don't simply, you know, use compute to, for example, compensate for existing biases that we could have fixed at the root.
0: And, and I, and I, this is a, Difficult format to sort of analyze a, a paper like this because it it brings a lot of it's not heavy in statistics but it's certainly better read than I think uh, talked about. So people, I encourage folks to uh, we did report about it, report on it in Metal Design and Outsourcing. It's in the uh, April issue of, of Science and it's available online. So if, if going forward, if you you're able to identify a, a, a bias from the, the the physics of product development. Uh, and perhaps if I'm not phrasing that right, feel free to correct me. What would you see the likely solution or outcome being? Is it the development of different devices f- used for different people, or can it be something that's corrected? Can the physics be compensated or corrected with uh, software or, or or changes to data?
2: Yeah, this is a, a great question. So I think the, the first solution that we need to uh, strive for as a community is we need to create an incentive structure to report biases. In other words, today when you publish a paper as a scientist, what is the best way to get your paper accepted? You take a device and you have a table and your number is better than everyone else. That's your (laughs) performance is better, right? It's like running a mile. Whoever runs the fastest mile gets their paper into a prestigious venue. So that game, I think, needs to change a little bit where it's not just a raw performance on you know, your data set, but you actually have to break it down with what is your performance on different groups mm-hmm. and kind of report that balance. Like this is my overall performance and this is my fairness. And if we can start having a culture of valuing both of these metrics, we'll immediately start seeing the solutions start coming because people are motivated and the publication and R&D process motivates these solutions to be developed. So I think that's kind of one of the first solutions that the paper proposes that I think needs to change. Now, the question about what if there's a upstream bias, can you do some downstream compensation? For example, a bias in the physics can we compensate for that in the software. So I think this solution, the answer is yes, you know, there's potentially some calibration that can be done. But oftentimes, if there is a fundamental bias in the physics, sometimes the downstream calibration can never be done. Okay, so so the first answer is yes, right? If you can do the compensation without any trade-offs, do it. Mm-hmm. Now, as kind of an academic, I'm looking at, all right, What what what's, what's on the horizon beyond kind of what's non-obvious here? So here's what's non-obvious. You, you have a bias in the physics that's been reported. Using this incentive structure of fairness and performance, your physicist who builds the device says, you know what? This cool device works. You get some data. Pretty, you know, pretty useful for diagnosis. But, you know, it's got a little bit of a... Uh, unfairness on certain groups, but you know, this is what it is and, and I'm publishing it and I'm reporting this. Okay, that's awesome. So we're now reporting and we're aware of the biases and a computer scientist comes along and tries to compensate for that. Now, it may not be possible to fully do calibration to kind of get around the laws of physics. And I'm going to give you a concrete example. Consider the pulse oximeter. The pulse oximeter that we spoke about earlier on this podcast is biased in the sense that you get less light back. Now, how do you deal with getting less light back? Well, you integrate your signal for longer. For example, you take a longer Mm -hmm. exposure time or you average multiple trials and so on. Now, the problem with that, averaging multiple trials, is you you can cause artifacts when you then go and you know, do signal averaging, because for example, you have signal fluctuations, you have a slight motion in the pulse oximeter. So taking a longer exposure kind of blurs out details. So there are these small compensations that that happen, but it's okay to to calibrate for that. And again, report what those trade-offs are. Like, yes, you know, we, we took a longer exposure time to overcome the Kind of laws of physics of getting less light, but there are these are the trade-offs with longer exposure time. So you can see that the device still isn't fully fair because dark-skinned subjects they might now get equivalent signal, but there's a trade-off where the negative downsides of long signal averaging start to play into effect. So at this point, we the, the paper talks about uh, a Pareto trade-off. So Pareto was a Italian scientist and economist and essentially a polymath who was saying that you know. There are some things in the world where optimizing for one metric comes at a disadvantage for another metric. And we kind of repurposed that Pareto principle to come up with this idea that, okay, so there's this trade-off between optimizing for the majority performance and fairness. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, if you take a device and you try to make it perform well, that'll come at the expense of, for example, minority groups. Conversely, if we simply optimize for minority groups, sometimes that can limit us from achieving peak performance potentially is, is one argument that's sometimes made. And we see this play out actually in society with the COVID vaccine. We had the Moderna vaccine, for instance. and the Moderna vaccine, I remember that uh, now, you know, bear in mind, I wasn't in the boardroom here when the decisions <laughs> were being made. But, you know, I was reading some of the articles on on the Moderna vaccine, and they were talking about how, okay, you know, in order to have an inclusive clinical trial, it took a little bit longer to get those initial trials to test the vaccine safety, which potentially delayed the rollout a little bit. Now, that's kind of a balance between majority versus minority, and they picked a trade-off point there that that makes sense for what they're trying to do. So I think uh, as not just as scientists, but also as society, we should start sort of, you know, analyze where we want this trade-off point to lie. Mm-hmm. So once you characterize your fairness, once you've characterized your performance, how do you want to balance between that? And so that's kind of an open question that I think the piece sort of ends with. And that can inform, to kind of answer your question in a very roundabout way, that can kind of inform how we do those computational solutions to compensate for upstream, uh, downstream uh, biases.
0: Well, that's a great point. I mean, it certainly would be a first step to at least acknowledge that this device performs better in this population than that population and, and give some, I suppose, some some comfort or at least some understanding to those who feel frustrated by by a certain test. But at the end of the day, I think we need to figure out a way to help everybody equally.
2: Yeah, and I think there's a there's an interesting point here. You know, they uh, they always say that uh, every, you know. Dinner time discussion or drinks with friends uh, always ends up with one word, you know, and at least in my life, it ends up with aliens. So, <laughs> another argument to be made here, uh, to be clear, is, is there is a trade off with what we know about current technology about the pulse oximeter. But, you know, tomorrow an alien race could give us a new version of a pulse oximeter that works on new physics mm-hmm. that completely changes that Pareto trade-off, what's what's called expanding the Pareto frontier. So we should not stop innovating in general to make these disruptive new physics and, and just push that Pareto frontier out. Now, I don't know that the aliens are gonna come next year, So, well, given COVID, you never know, but uh, (laughs) it's it's a year, but there's got to be a balance also between what short-term solutions, kind of like what trade-offs we can do with current devices that we can do today, and then what devices we can do when uh, either we have, you know, this brilliant physicist that comes out and invents a new technology or kind of, again, the aliens come and give it to us, right? So.
0: Well, if if we do get aliens to give us some medical technology, I certainly will work to get them on on this podcast. But uh, you're right, that that does sort of open up the the field of opportunity for those who may see an area that they think is settled by a technology. There actually is a a wide open area for them to operate. So uh, great point. Excellent. Well, Chuta, thank you for uh, for joining us on the podcast. This has been a fun conversation.
2: Thanks so much, Tom. Pleasure to be here.
0: Alrighty, bring us on to uh, on to number three, Chris Newmarker.
1: Uh, it's another MA deal. We got Endologics acquiring a PQ Bypass, and uh, PQ Bypass makes a uh, makes something called the the Detour uh, platform. That, that's uh, it's like providing a large lumen endograph bypass to treat uh, abdominal aortic aneurysms. Uh, you know, kind of kind of a vision like a bit a really long stent type. You know, device. Um, it's got breakthrough device designation from FDA, so you know, there could be some uh, fast tracking things for them. But you know, right. it looks like Endologics. Endologics is uh, acquiring the technology.
0: Excellent. All right, good purchase by Endologics. Bring us into uh, into number two.
1: Number two. You know, guess what it is? It's another acquisition. M and A. m and A. We got Zoll Medical uh, acquiring Respicardia um, for an undisclosed amount, and uh, you know, Respicardia makes. Uh, implantable neurostimulators to treat uh, severe central sleep apnea.
0: We, we had Tim Herbert from Inspire on a, a little bit ago on the podcast Picardi is certainly another one so
1: Neurostim's it's been a hot space. Yeah. I mean I mean just the fact you've got this like pacemaker type tech and you know in recent years you know all these companies have you know popped up with you know ideas like well we could take pacemaker tech and use it to zap nerves here or there or whatever to treat you know different um Different problems, and um, so so yeah. Like Zol, Zol's like wanting to get in on the act with uh, treating sleep apnea mm-hmm. with uh, Neurostem.
0: Great. Well, it should should uh, be an interesting competitor for uh, for Inspire Medical. All right, bring us into number one, Chris Newmarker.
1: Number one on the list, we've got Siemens Health and Ears uh, completing their sixteen point four billion dollar acquisition of Varian Medical Systems. Um, just another huge giant. M&A deal that's, uh, that's done now. And, uh, you know, the, the companies have, have been saying this is, they, they've been touting that this is going to create the most comprehensive cancer care portfolio in the industry. So it's, uh, yeah, it's another really huge M&A deal. And uh, I, I, it just seems like amid the pandemic, we've just been seeing so much M&A, um, you know, I, I suspect it's like there's been a bit of like deal shopping. Maybe. Yeah. Do you think so, Tom?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, there, we talked at the beginning of the year that there was a lot of money out there. There'd be a lot of opportunities for acquisitions, and uh, it seems to be happening. So, yeah, this this does seem to happen in cycles. Though not to sound like yeah. old guy on a porch, but uh, it's true. But uh, I think everything is is COVID related. So I'm sure that had some role into into it uh, as companies found found efficiencies and found new ways of doing things. Maybe it made acquisitions more obvious than before. So interesting.
1: And I kind of recall we were, you know, seeing a lot of M&A as we were getting out of the, the great recession. So I mean, kind of kind of the same thing. You get, you start to head out of a downturn, you know, like what we had in last year, you start to see a lot of deals. So, so yeah, we'll see what happens next. Maybe it's the bedline deal. We'll, yeah. we'll find out.
0: We've but, seen a lot Chris Newmarker, haven't we? We've seen many things over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Leanne Teplitsky, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you very much. Very happy to be here.
0: It's great to have Zimmer on the program. I think you're our first is Zimmer guest, so it's uh, it's nice to finally have your your company represented. So we are we are completing our uh, our path to world med tech domination by getting every med tech company <laughs> on here.
3: Nice.
0: But I want to uh, I want to follow up on your work as ever. You've got a, a huge portfolio and program. But I always love to find out a little bit about our guests and about how they they found their way into the medtech industry. And uh, my extensive research, which is looking at your LinkedIn profile, tells me that you're uh, you're a biomedical. You started off as a biomedical engineer. How how did you how did you choose this path into uh, into medtech?
3: So I grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, and. Going to school there, I actually thought out of high school, I wanted to be a doctor going to medicine. So I started out doing pre-med classes and kind of shortly thereafter, I started talking to some doctors. My mom was actually working at the cancer clinic um, in Saskatoon as a pharmacist. And, you know, I just figured that being right on the front line wasn't going to be quite where I could manage things, right? It was going to be a little bit too emotional. I wasn't sure that I could really handle it, but I thought, you know, the technology behind medicine. Now that is something that really interests me. So I went over to the engineering department and I said, "How do I do that? How do, how do I help <laughs> you know design and build technology behind medicine?" And they said, "Well, you have to go into electrical engineering because they didn't even have biomedical engineering at my school at the time." So I changed my main path at school to go into electrical engineering. I still finished my physiology degree. So I was super interested in it, but basically graduated with an electrical engineering degree. And at the time that I graduated. The majority of my class at the time either went into telecom or they went into oil. From where from where <laughs> I was, and I, I, that, that's not where I really wanted to go. I wasn't thinking that's how I was going to use my degree. I had always said when people ask me, "Well, how? What do you mean by medical engineering? Like, what does that even mean?" And I was like, "Well, you know, like pacemakers, defibrillators, stuff like that. Like designing stuff that go into people that help them." And very fortuitously, I I got an opportunity, dream job, dream location. It was at Saint Jude Medical, literally designing. Implantable defibrillators, hardware design engineer. Yeah. In sunny. Sunnyvale, California. And so I was (laughs) out of there, you know, warm weather, honestly, really dream job, exactly what I wanted to do. So I I just feel really lucky. And and I started there and spent 20 years with St. Jude Medical and then Abbott and loved my time there. And uh, I got to spend a lot of years just doing a number of different things with that organization from hardcore engineering all the way through to sales, actually, and kind of everything in between. That's just great. loving kind of every minute of it, yeah,
0: so you started at Saint Jude, but then you went back to to Duke for a biomedical engineering engineering degree what 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 led to that
3: again, the hardcore engineering I was doing, I loved it, but it was a lot of time behind the computer screen, and mm-hmm. I just thought, you know i want to be I, I I really love this idea of patience, you know having wanted to be a little bit closer to that, and so thought you know what the the opportunity here for me maybe to go back to school and truly do my master's in biomedical engineering and had the opportunity to go to Duke to do that and loved it. And there I was actually sitting, you know, in, in the electrophysiology lab, recording data, had an opportunity to work both in the biomedical engineering department as well as right in that electrophysiology lab and got my degree and then was able to go back, sort of continue and go and work right in the area that I was studying, which was atrial fibrillation at the time back with St. Jude Medical. So took a small hiatus from industry, but just to get that degree and then continue along that same path.
0: If you had stayed at St. Jude, continued engineering, continued doing that work and didn't get that biomedical degree, would you have gone as far as you did? Or, or what did the biomedical degree give you that you felt you were maybe missing when you, when you first started working at St. Jude?
3: Right. I think it was just getting more direct clinical application. So mm-hmm. when you're looking at timing diagrams, you know, that are on going to be in a chipset in a lab, okay, that impacts, you know, the heart, (laughs) but (laughs) instead of being really, you know, directly there working and understanding. So my, my role as I came out of of school, um, I mean my master's degree there was really then I was able to be the liaison between the engineers, you know, that are working on the product and, you know, the physicians in the field. And so to be able to translate exactly what's happening in the lab or the OR and translate it back to the engineers. And, and I was really at that time doing preclinical data development, first human use trials, bringing new technology to market. Uh, so just had, uh, you know, a little bit closer to the patient, but that translational role. And so able to apply both my engineering and some of the additional skills that I gained at school.
0: So you moved on in your med tech career and you, you moved on to the, the, the sales side. What was uh, what was your, your transition like or what was your, what did your career path follow in medtech?
3: The major engineering components, I went on into sort of preclinical clinical data development, really product development, R&;D type work and then had the opportunity to move over to the business side. And, you know, I always as a scientist considered that to be a little bit of the dark side, you know, <laughs> a lot of hand waving, I wasn't really sure. I'm like, No, I, I can't do that. I, I can't just get passionate about if, you know, brochure is red or blue, I'm sure it's really important. But that's not where my passion lies. You know, uh-huh. um, I really want to be able to be making a difference and, and, you know, publishing papers and things like that on the scientific side. Um, but of course, when you put yourself into other people's as you realize, it's not maybe exactly what you had anticipated it to be and went over and realized, you know, the value proposition that we're bringing to the market has to do with the scientific data, right? Mm-hmm. What what really um, are the benefits of this technology and how is has it been proven? And so moving over into sort of a more marketing market development role, I was able to take those learnings from the scientific side and what we were doing there and then apply them and be able to, you know, have that more for our commercial teams and what we were doing and looking more at the strategy on what we should be developing, where the needs were in the market, what the gaps were. Um, And so went over and did, you know, a role in a leadership role in marketing, which was sort of a a strategy role along with the, the, the typical marketing application. And then from there, the, at the very end, you know, I had never actually carried the bag, you know, and they were like, I think this would be a really good opportunity for you to go out and really do sales. And wow. I thought, you know what, that's probably true. I should do that. <laughs> Again, I was like, "Woo!" now I'm going all the way to the very edges. Um, and went out into the field had honestly just a phenomenal team in the field who was very accepting, despite, you know, this was not the normal trajectory. Most people just come up through sales and continue to get promoted in the sales category. So for me not to have been in the field and then move out there at a pretty senior leadership level. Uh, I was very grateful to my team that was there that helped me onboard, but I think it allowed me to leverage some of the the leadership skills and communication tactics that I had used um, in my past, and, you know, just continuing to work to, to elevate the team. And again, you put yourself in a position where you're, you thought that what I was delivering as a marketing person to the field was getting leveraged in certain ways and you can understand then, you know, where there may have been some pitfalls and how to improve the entire process, making sure that people are getting the materials that they need and are able to deliver on the asks that they have. So it was a it was a phenomenal phenomenal learning experience for me for sure
0: yeah that's great. It's great to have such a deep understanding of of both sides of the house, so to speak. So you were at Saint Jude with the acquisition of Abbott and then Abbott from Abbott you last year right before the looks like the pandemic or just right as the pandemic was starting to settle you you moved over to uh, Zimmer Biomet. What was the decision there what what uh, what intrigued you about the opportunity at Zimmer yeah it was it
3: was a tough decision you know, moving from something where I knew so well and everyone there had been at the same company. But the opportunity, honestly, was the ability to potentially truly change the standard of care in orthopedics. Mm-hmm. And I had looked at my, you know, career path in um, what I had done in cardiovascular space and bringing some new technologies to market. And, you know, they already had a lot of um, objective measures that they're using in the OR, in, in cardiovascular medicine. And just orthopedics was not did not seem to quite be there yet. And this is an opportunity to take a sort of a number of disparate teams and really build a business unit around technology and data and with this goal of helping to transform the company from going from metal and plastic to technology and data. And I just, I, I couldn't pass on it. It just sounded so amazing that I, I really was ready to just jump into the orthopedic space and see what we could do.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, the, the the fact that you're bringing a lot of lessons from, uh, from cardiac over to orthopedics. And what is your assessment of the orthopedics digital surgery space right now? I mean, we've seen over the last seven years, really since robotics kind of became... Part of uh, the mainstream offerings with with Stryker's acquisition of Mako, and of course Zimmer Bioman and others have have brought out their own systems as well. Are we? Are we? Well, I'll use my my baseball analogy. Are we in the fourth or fifth inning, or we, is this a is, is this something that's become firmly entrenched, or are we still in, in the in the very early innings?
3: So I I think we're still in pretty early innings. Mm-hmm. But it's accelerating quickly, is what I'll say. You know, I think Zimmer Biomet, having brought Rosa to market, and even through the pandemic through 2020, it really did accelerate. You know, I think there's a new mindshare change that technology is going to become an integral part of orthopedics. And, you know, you can look at different things that are tipping points, whether that's COVID looking at pre and post-operative care and having to remotely manage things, or it's that patients are actually now really becoming more and more involved in their own care pathway. And they're, you know, they're used to using technology every day for everything that we're doing, right? They're, they're using their phones or they're using their GPS or whatever the, the case may be. And, and I think they're looking for that now as, you know, they're, they're looking at any kind of healthcare that, that they're getting. So patients are going to be, I think, an impetus to that And then you hit a level of plateau of outcomes as Mm -hmm. well, you know. So still, with knee replacement, one in five patients isn't completely satisfied. Length of stay isn't necessarily getting a whole lot better. You're not improving efficiencies as much. Let's say within the OR in orthopedics. So we're going to need technology to kind of get over that hurdle, you know, of, of really being able to improve care, improve outcomes, improve efficiencies, and ultimately, you know, hopefully improve value. And, and those experiences across that entire continuum of care.
0: Well, let's talk a bit about Zimmer Biomet's offerings. I mean, you launched just last month your ZB Edge connected intelligence suite of digital and robotics tech. What is in that suite of, of offerings, and how does how will you move forward with uh, with this uh, this package?
3: Yeah, so this is really meant to to brand that entire suite. To your mm-hmm. point, so we have all of our connected digital health and robotic technologies there. Purpose built to be seamlessly integrated with each other to ultimately optimize care. And so it will include today the, you know, a Rosa Robotics platform, a My Mobility with Apple Watch platform, our planning tools, our Omni Suite, um, which is basically the OR intelligence that we have. And then all of that, then all of those different disparate pieces come together with our Ortho Intel intelligence platform. And the idea here is that you bring all of those data points together, which there are literally thousands across that patient's care continuum. And then we can take those data and leverage them, again, like I said, across the patient's continuum of care pre-intra and post-operatively.
0: Let's talk first about the ROSA system. How are you positioning that for orthopedic surgeons? Where Where is the benefit for uh for the the hospitals for the customers who will be who are interested in in bringing in in a robotic system what what are the benefits of of those using the Rosa robotic system
3: so i really think this idea of bringing objective measures into the or is going to continue to be more and more important and with robotics and with rosa you're able to do that and prior to robotics surgeons felt you know they they have an implant they feel that it should go in a certain position they make their cuts, they implant, and and then they move the knee around and, and they feel. So a orthopedic surgeon that's on hundreds and hundreds knows what a good knee feels like, you know, and then they suture up and, and the patient can go on. Um, but again, one in five patients, we don't know exactly why they're dissatisfied. So now with bringing in robotics into the surgery suite, you can now take very specific measurements and you can understand exactly the cuts that you're doing. So bringing in a a much, much higher level of accuracy and truly understanding what you've done pre and intraoperatively, and then what those results may look like postoperatively. So Mm -hmm. having that, having that accuracy and those objective measures intraoperatively, and then with ROSA specifically, we've designed it so that it really works alongside the surgeon. So we just, it, it goes right into their standard workflow. It's not kind of forcing you into a new, new workflow. So that we think that that's a, you know, a nice advantage. So that transition from standard instrumentation over into robotics is meant to be very smooth.
0: So who is driving the, the demand for this system or for robotic systems in general in orthopedics? Is it, is it coming from the surgeons? Are they demanding more capabilities? Uh, is it the hospitals that sort of want the data to, to track and maybe find ways to, to do a better job? What is the primary source of demand?
3: I, I think it's coming across the board in certain pockets, right? So first, you mm-hmm. already talked about the patients. I think the patients when they know that there's a robot out there that that is able to give them potentially more accurate procedure and potentially a better outcome, they're going to look for that. Like I said earlier, you know, the idea that you have technology involved in your healthcare and um, in the treatment that you get, I think is becoming more and more important. I think surgeons are definitely interested and are are looking for ways to improve efficiency. They're looking for ways to improve their outcomes. They don't want to have that one patient that isn't satisfied. And then, of course, hospitals, you know, not having variability within, you know, certain cases, um, if they can find a way to make it cost effective, which obviously we work very hard to do that and don't have patients coming back, there are dissatisfied. I think mm-hmm. that there's interest across the board and there's a competitive nature there, too, if a hospital across the street doesn't have robotics. Um, and they do. I think that, again, we go back to the patients and it and it pulls in patient volume for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Great point. And let's let's move down the line a bit with uh, with the My Mobility program with, the, with Apple Watch. I've got an Apple Watch. I've got certainly an abundance of apps on there. <laughs> what is the function of, of My Mobility and how is it being received uh, from the patient population?
3: So, my Mobility, it's a care management system, right? And to your point, it uses the iPhone and the Apple Watch, and it, it is meant to help surgeons deliver support and guidance to their patients through this connected experience. And it mm-hmm. allows the surgeon to collect and monitor objective data about their patient's surgical preparation and their recovery, right? So we kind of talk about it for the patients, its journey companion, on you know, on their wrist. And it, it offers pre- and post-operatively educating the patient what you should be doing. It provides exercise guidance for them. And it also allows real-time interaction and Q&A with the care team. It actually now even has functionality to do telemedicine as well through this platform. So I will tell you that the patients feel very well taken care of. Again, we've had a couple of responses back saying, especially post-operatively, you know, you can deliver all this care and through COVID, it's been really fun to see the the kinds of responses. And they just feel like they've got this cheerleader kind of alongside them that's helping them out, telling them what they should be doing, encouraging them along, you know, tracking um, how well they're doing. And this particular platform, what what I think is kind of fun about it, and another thing that sort of led me over to to work with Zimmer Biomet was that this was a startup company that was acquired, but it's based on a fitness gaming app. So it's built in a very hmm. different way. And also this partnership with Apple that is a little different than what I feel like I've seen in typical med tech apps. You know, it, it's just built built to be super engaging, to be a very um, great user experience. And then again, the partnership with Apple has lent itself well for us that we're, we were able to get some metrics ahead of time. So now we can even measure gate. Uh, it was through a special algorithm with a health kit app that we got access to early that we can then go in and, and, and apply to our My Mobility platform.
0: So let's talk a bit about your smart implant system. How does that fit into all of this? Because that would seem to be a, an integral part.
3: It is and it it will be certainly. We are we are really, really excited about Persona IQ, which is what we're calling the SMART implant. Essentially what that is is our persona knee system with an additional little bit of a stubby stem on it. And what that does is it collects a whole bunch of high fidelity data to track patient recovery. So this is really about post-operative measurements. So we have our My Mobility with Apple Watch platform that collects both pre and post-operatively. ROSA intraoperatively, it all goes into our ortho intel intelligence platform. And essentially now with the ability to have the smart implant, it's implanted in the patient. So it's not a wearable that you may forget or may not have on or the battery may have died, but it's essentially collecting passive data always on, right? So it really maximizes patient compliance because there's nothing to wear or charge or forget. Mm -hmm. And it just collects that high fidelity data. So it gets uploaded every 24 hours. Into the cloud, and then it gets added and enhanced with the My Mobility and Apple Watch data. So it's a really, really nice sort of marriage of the two technologies for us going forward, and becomes an integral part of ZD Edge.
0: It's fascinating. So, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're making a great point for us being on the cusp of a, a real data data heavy orthopedic industry. So, where uh, where do we go from here, and how does Zimmer find its place?
3: Yeah, so I really feel like it's DB Edge. So, this idea of being connected and having already today, we have thousands of patients on our My Mobility with Apple Watch platform and engaging the patient and having the patient at the center of what we're doing and how we're thinking about it, I think is going to be critically important. So, if you look at you know, data-driven decision-making and what we're able to do across the platform as we are collecting these data points, like I said, thousands of them pre-intra and post-operatively, we pull them all together into our ortho-intel intelligence platform that is alive and well today, right? We're already making connections, looking at rows of patients versus not rows of patients. You know, now we're collecting additional information around the insights. So if you have enough of a data population, you have insights that can be generated that can then over time predict care and then recommend care. And so if you look at, at what we're doing today and where I think that we have an edge over the competition, I'll say, is, is the connectivity piece and that everything is working in concert with each other already today and built on a solid platform versus having a portfolio where, yes, you may be collecting data, but is it valuable data? And is the data able to be pulled together and seamlessly integrated? To really be able to optimize those outcomes going forward
0: now, how quickly do you think the the data will be or the need for data or the understanding for the need of data will need for data will be adopted by the orthopedics industry
3: i think we're going to see a snowball effect here mm. i think the smart implant is going to be uh, one pretty big catalyst in that arena because an implant is something that the orthopedic world knows very very well And now that that is actually generating data directly from the implant, I think it's going to be a catalyst for looking at, okay, well, I have data now directly from the knee. Oh, there's this my mobility platform that is, that goes around that as well. And I have data from my Rosa system that can all be pulled together. And again, you know, we're working really hard to make sure that the user experience, both from the patient perspective, as well as for the surgeon and the care teams, it's not disruptive to what they're doing today, but it enhances what they're doing and hopefully will make their life easier going forward. And I think that's ultimately where you really start getting, you know, a lot more adoption of technology. And of course, the goal here is, is better outcomes. So if we get to the point where the surgeons and the care teams that are leveraging the technology are finding that their patients are doing better, and that they're able to get, you know, maybe one extra um, case in the OR per day, or go home a little earlier, whatever the case may be, Mm -hmm. um, around efficiencies, and you know, there's, and there's value that that is really being provided. I mean, that's ultimately what, what's going to drive the market.
0: Well, it's, it's an exciting platform and uh, you've got me excited about orthopedics. Uh, again, I, I like the idea of, uh, of sort of the data mindset moving more and more into this industry. I think it's going to be uh, fun to watch. Thanks for, uh, for taking the time today and for being on, on the podcast, Leanne.
3: It's absolutely my pr- pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Well, it's great to hear from Taplitsky from Zimmer. We finally got Zimmer on the podcast, Chris. Yeah, we're uh, we're completing our uh, our MedTech bingo card. I want I want all every MedTech company ever on this podcast at some point. I think
1: that sounds important. like a plan. We'll get through it. Maybe we'll get uh maybe the, if something happens with Medline, we'll get a uh, Medline on that here. That would
0: be great. That would be great. Always happy to learn. We got to get Zoll on here. We get more Zimmer folks. We've got to keep reaching out and uh, and serving this awesome community. And speaking of community, it really it is. is it is. Great to be part of it. Speaking of community, Chris Newmarker, how can they find you on social media?
1: Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a, a new marker. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Newmarker, and yeah, always, uh, always happy to meet new people and uh, you know hear hear new ideas for stories.
0: And I am on Twitter at MedTech Tom. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. Chris and I continue to to plan to be on Clubhouse at some point. Uh, our Wednesdays have been filling up. And frankly, it's been a challenge to, we want to make sure we have guests. We want to make sure it's a good conversation uh, as much as we, we would, would enjoy just chatting with our listeners. We want to make sure when we're on there, we're bringing you some, some news and, and uh, information. So we'll continue to, uh, to work on that. Keep an eye on your, your clubhouse uh, schedule. We'll, we'll work with the MedTech group there to put on uh, some broader discussions and uh, we will be back. We promise.
2: I'll be back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wrap thanks again for joining us on the device talks weekly podcast please do subscribe please do follow uh, device talks and mass device on social media please do share this podcast with your friends on social media and uh, when you do tag chris and myself on those formats aforementioned social media connections. We'd love to be uh, be part of that conversation. And of course, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast waiting for you. Hey, stay safe, get vaccinated.